Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 26th of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined today by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and uh, Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Now we'll get straight on here and uh, well, quasi quartang the. Uh... Chancellor of the Exchequer was on the BBC yesterday. Uh, he was talking lots of sense, as everybody will appreciate. He spoke to Laura Kunzberg about the government's growth plan and how the Prime Minister Liz Truss and I are committed to economic growth, leading to more jobs uh, and more money for public services. It's incredible. Well, I think it's appropriate that he's got a cartoon behind him. And I notice there's no time on the clock because, of course, uh, this is just going to be an unending disaster. Well, it is. And the disaster started today because as a result of what happened on the, the, with the announcement on Friday and probably also partly as a result of his performance yesterday, uh, well, this is what happened to the pound uh, today. Well, it continued its slide. It's now fallen to its lowest level on record, apparently, against the dollar. Uh, it's on uh, $1.07 when I took this uh, this screenshot and against the euro, one euro 11. Um, so uh, what else was uh, Quasi tweeting out this morning? He was saying uh, we have to act in the short term to support households and businesses through the energy shock, just as we did during the pandemic. Um, but uh, the pandemic was a shock caused by government policy and the energy shock is a shock caused by government policy. So they're running around trying to impose or implement government policy to deal with government policy. This uh, couldn't possibly be any better. Well, probably it could, Mike, but I, I'm just going to say I have now replied to a lot of people who ask me what is going on. The way to understand what is going on in the UK is to understand that we are being attacked by our own government. The government is introducing policies which it knows will destroy elements of this country, whether it's the NHS or the, the economy. Um, so just try it. Any announcement by government that doesn't appear to make sense, think about it. Would this make sense if our own government was trying to destroy us, create chaos? And I think you'll be very surprised that uh, the answers come out very quickly. Um, the tweet went on. The UK has the second lowest ratio of public debt to GDP in the G7. We're committed to getting debt to GDP down over the medium term. So I wonder how that's going. Uh, let's look at this. Uh, UK bonds plunge as uh, government ramps up borrowing more than expected, says Bloomberg. 10-year uh, sovereign guilt yield set for biggest jump on record. Money markets expect a percentage point Bank of England hike in November. Um, well, indeed. Um, so what is likely to happen? The Bank of England uh, doesn't hold uh, a monetary policy committee meeting in October any year. Uh, it's The next one is in November. There's some talk of, of there being uh, an advanced uh, meeting, uh, an emergency meeting uh, to bring interest rates up. Because, of course, uh, with the pound sliding the way it is, this has a massive impact on everybody's lives. Uh, bearing in mind, for example, um, that uh, we are totally food dependent on other nations. We import more than 50% of our food. Uh, and actually, if you're a vegan, um, we import around 80 to 90% of, uh, of the typical uh, vegan diet. So um, this is going to have a massive impact. Oil and gas, of course, are going to be hugely affected by this as well because they're traded in dollars. Um, but don't worry, uh, because Chris Skidmore is launching the uh, Net Zero Review today uh, because we're heading towards Net Zero. And this is just what you were saying a second ago, Brian. Government policy 
taking the economy to zero because how can there be uh, genuine net zero unless we're actually not doing anything? Uh, that's the only way to not produce uh, greenhouse gases. Well, exactly. And this is, this is where our audience has to follow the pieces of the jigsaw as they're assembled. It is to destroy the existing economy, uh, to destroy uh, the community within this country in order to reset that's what's coming. Yeah, well, indeed. Uh, so uh, the UK is still on target, according to the government, to uh, reach net zero by 2050. Uh, and Skidmore uh, will run this review. He's been commissioned by the Business and Energy Secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, for this. Now, he, of course, is a former Energy Secretary, uh, Energy Minister, I should say. But he's also chair of the Environment All-Party Parliamentary Group and the Net Zero Support Group. Um, but uh, Alex... Uh, then we've got uh, this in Bloomberg. Uh, banks dust off lockdown plans to beat possible power blackouts in London. So uh, they're acknowledging the possibility there could be uh, energy shortages over the winter, uh, that electricity could be switched off. And therefore, uh, well, the uh, lockdown plans were basically a, a precursor to this. How convenient indeed, Mike. And what Bloomberg Europe is reporting is that these handily ready-made plans for lockdown contingency are being dusted off because they also involve going off-site, leaving London and other financial major centres for the leafy suburbs. So in the case of London-based businesses, they're looking for uh, bolt holes in the home counties. And they're also looking to South Africa, that famously well-run economy, to work out how to get enough diesel generators in the basements to carry on operations. Not very green or sustainable, except, of course, if sustainability means more money. Uh, indeed. Well, OK, let's move on to uh, defence and war, uh, more to the point. And uh, well, we'd be glad to know that the uh, Atlantic Future Forum begins uh, on Wednesday uh, in New York. And uh, well, wonder what ship that is, Brian. Well, it will be one of our two aircraft carriers. Well, it can, it can only it's be going one. to be the Prince of Wales, possibly. Uh, no, it's not the Prince of Wales, oh, because no. that's in a dry dock, of course. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, yes. No, it is the Queen Elizabeth. And they're very excited that it's the Queen Elizabeth, because with the passing of the Queen, it's only appropriate that it was the Queen Elizabeth that it's being hosted on, right? So they've managed to get around the, the slight uh, embarrassment, embarrassment uh, by redefining it. Um, so uh, here is uh, the Queen Elizabeth arriving into New York. Uh, for this event. It's a spectacular event uh, and it's all about the uh, uh, defence industrial complex. What are your thoughts as you're watching that? Well, um, my thought on it was was one of not very spectacular entry because um, one would have expected a little bit more ceremonial but empty decks, um, decks and coming into that uh, environment I just find a little bit strange. So pr presumably something else is going on. Well, it's a, it's a gathering of the great and the good. There we've got Mark Sedwell on the top left. Uh, bottom left there, so Tony Radican's going to be there. So that's going to impress the Americans a lot. Well, I hope they've got a lot of coloured crayons for him to use, Mike, because uh, he's uh, very keen on his little lines. Yes, and, and the wonderful Dame Karen Pierce, formerly of the, uh, Security the UN Security Council, the UK's ambassador to the UN Security Council, who's now her Majesty, or sorry, His Majesty's ambassador to the United States. Uh, massive representation from the military-industrial complex, Airbus, Thales. Uh, oh, OneWeb is there, of course. This is a satellite company, which uh, until recently was wholly owned by the uh, UK government. Uh, Millbank, uh, Atlas Electronic, Boeing, and so on. Uh, and what kind of events are they talking about? Well, we've got an expert plenary here, the end of the age of innocence, Russia, China, and the new fight for democracy. 
So we're in a fight for democracy against Russia and China, as if we didn't know. Uh, then we've got another ex. Oh, well, just uh, the keynote is coming from uh, Sir Tony Radican, so that's got to be an interesting event. But anyway, uh, another expert plenary: uh, economics and power, financial resilience, and governance in a competitive world. Uh, Sorry, I just see Cato Institute, Atlantic Council. Yes. These are all the think tanks which are accountable to nobody but themselves. Absolutely. Uh, then we've got uh, disruption matters: uh, harnessing the power of collaboration to deliver strategic technological advance. Uh, and uh, we've also got another uh, one that I haven't got a graphic for here, which is all about AI in the modern age with respect to defense and warfare and so on. Um, so Alex, uh, this is an important event, although it'll probably get very little media coverage, mainstream media coverage, uh, very much uh, glad handing with the military industrial complex and working out where the next, uh, the next uh, uh, contracts are gonna go. Well, that was very much the key finding of our big push on European military unification uh, four or five years ago, wasn't it, by Brian and Mike? We found that the industry was already supranational and even transcontinental because the likes of Raytheon, BAE, Rolls-Royce, whatever the name says, they are not continental British or American or Canadian. They are trans-Western world companies. And one shudders to think that behind this defence industry lobbying, or military industrial complex is perhaps the more honest name, there are said to be at least two even more powerful lobbies in Washington and London, uh, namely the pharmaceutical industry, uh, reported on tirelessly by Debbie Evans, who joins us today, and in pole position, the lobbying for the state of Israel. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, just in time for that uh, event, of course, uh, well, Ben Wallace was speaking to the Sunday Telegraph, uh, and this is what he had to say. My department has been so used to 30 or 40 years of defending against cuts or reconciling cuts with modern fighting, they're going to have to get used to a completely different culture, which is we're actually going to grow, we're actually going to change. So we're, we're ramping up for war then, basically. We're, we're going to get uh, the military expanded for war with Russia. We're going to get the uh, defence industry, um, presumably, in the billions and trillions. Well, certainly in the billions. And uh, so they're going to go up to uh, 3% of GDP. But then, of course, GDP is falling so fast that maybe that doesn't make any difference. But anyway, uh, so Defence Secretary is how he's been described there. Perhaps Secretary of State for War is more likely in the coming uh, months. Um, but this is what else he had to say. The reason I supported Liz Truss was that the risks we were prepared to tolerate in the middle of this decade are not risks I want to tolerate anymore in light of Russian aggression. Uh, there are certain risks we can't really take anymore. And that's why I wrote to the Chancellor last March to say the stuff that we didn't get in the integrated review uh, that we'd asked for, we really do need. Now, the integrated review, of course, the core doctrine in that is the uh, 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 idea that the UK is now on an offensive footing rather than a defensive footing. Uh, and I think that uh, is, uh, echoes what Brian's just said. But anyway, uh, the reality is we'll be working with the Treasury to ensure we have a budget that grows to meet the threats and our ambitions. Yeah. What are his ambitions? Well, um, we, we can guess, Mike, that he's been discussing his ambitions with Zelensky in, in the Ukraine because the public were not privy to those discussions. So is this how to actually defeat Russia and split up uh, Russia as a sovereign state? Good question. Uh, Quasi is going to be a great open ch chancellor. He's not going to shut the door to number 11 and hide behind it. So there we go. Uh, Alex, thoughts? Yes. Um, Quasi, of course, is the Latin prefix meaning almost or a sham version of something. 
Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Let's uh, let's bring foreign affairs on screen then. This is the House Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which dictates by very many accounts who is the US Secretary of State. And anyone who's researched it and written books documenting it knows that it is taking orders from a London-based think tank, Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, going back to Cecil Rhodes's day. Foreign Affairs is, is its House Journal, and uh, you can see there that the Americans are being told they must uh, support democracy worldwide. So the image to accompany the journal piece uh, by Larry Diamond is a deflated globe. It looks rather like um, one of those old Jellignites uh, exploding levers, doesn't it, from cartoons. But it's said to, that the, the image is said to be, or purportedly, a column of US democracy uh, blowing new life into a deflated globe, i.e. loss of control by the Anglo-American ascendancy. So Diamond has said here, and we will just blitz through this, people can freeze the screen because there's so much as usual today. Uh, not all Americans appreciate the importance of promoting democracy abroad. To anyone over about, well, any age actually, who's been through schooling in particularly Britain, this is the old isolationism debate as it's been framed by the CFR side. Uh, in other words, America actually fulfilling its constitutional duty uh, to look after its own people and stay out of uh, foreign embroilments uh, and entanglements. So we're told that Russia and China are uh, threatening democracies, uh, sterling democracies like the Ukraine, and uh, the Democracy and the Rule of Law, for which see the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution series on our website, the proper definitions. Uh, if, if these predominate, then the outcome will be, oh, look at that, friendlier to American interests and democratic value. So I would suggest that democracy here is code for friendly to American interests. Just tapping through the, the, the remaining couple of uh, shots of what I've done here. Information war. Washington needs a US information agency on steroids to fight the information law war a lot more aggressively. Uh, next one. Uh, to fight disinformation and authoritarian propaganda. That would be uh, us gathered here today um, questioning our governments. Democracy education is crucial. A paragraph of blurb, bottom of page. In some countries, democracy education may need to proceed entirely outside state-controlled classrooms. So that will be um, us through our agencies and NGOs uh, sending uh, alternative schooling into countries to undermine what parents and education ministries want their children to learn about the world. Finally, uh, one more uh, slide from that, if you put that on. Uh, no, that is uh, the last one, Alex. Oh, that's one, I beg your pardon. Yes, uh, I, there was so much I could have uh, chopped out there, but you see where this is going. Yes. Oh, okay, and that, sorry, did you? Well, I, I just wanted to reinforce the point that, uh, that whatever these people are doing, they always come back to go for the children. When they talk about schools, they're not really talking about education. They're talking about grabbing the minds of the children. This is the reframing. This is pushing the propaganda into the children. Teaching them the snow is black. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Alex, uh, then we've got uh, this. Sorry, this is go. just a, a footnote, really. Uh, it's a, a question that was asked on uh, the forum Axis History as far back as 2011. And I've put the URL in the top right hand corner. And of course, it will be in the show notes later on under the upload of the news. But someone was asking well before the Ukraine got so politicized, three years before the coup of 2014, uh, about the Rimini list Ukrainians. Rimini, of course, is a city in northeastern Italy uh, where there was a POW camp. And he writes that a friend, friend's father may have been in the 14th SS division, and I believe he came to England via Rimini after the war. 
I've heard of the Rimini list of personnel from this division, which apparently is held somewhere in English archives. Where is it held? Is there a public access or a name check? To which a gentleman called Melnik, uh, with a Ukrainian surname, so somebody of Ukrainian descent in Britain by the look of it, replied, the so-called Rimini list does exist. It's at Q. It's permanently classified and you cannot gain access to it. I have a photocopy of page one, he adds, which shows names and rank and which has places, of date, places and dates of birth blanked out. And there's one more thing he adds there. Um, the association that would be of uh, the descendants of Ukrainians does not have the list. I cannot think of one good reason, says Mike Melnick, why this Rimini list should be classified. It was largely composed from information given by the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, for example, there were men from eastern Ukraine who were eligible for repatriation who gave different names and dates of birth to evade Stalin. Uh, of course, after the war, Churchill decided that Ukrainians and Poles would be ingloriously, ignominiously sent back, uh, or in some cases it wasn't even sent back, sent to uh, the communists for a horrible death. Uh, but you can see that before the latest round of the use of the Ukraine by the West, there was already this long backstory of certain Ukrainians uh, of SS persuasions being salted away to Britain. So paperclip actually had a very strong presence in that buffer zone between Germany and Russia. Uh, and, uh, sorry, I was just going to ask, Alex, is that, is that something that you think uh, people should be putting pressure on the government to, uh, to release? Of course, if someone with a Ukrainian heritage, and we know how proud they are of their heritage, the ones who grew up in Britain and Canada particularly, if he's saying, I can't think of a single good reason why this should remain classified by the National Archives at Kew, then anyone else who hasn't got a dog in the fight should be putting even more pressure uh, on the National Archives, or more particularly on our politicians, to release that list. Uh, thank you for that, Alex. I, I'm also going to guess that we will find some links with the work of Wilton Park in retraining senior Nazi officers, where there is a very grey history about who these people were and what they ultimately did when they were sent back into Germany. Um, Alex, I, just, I, I wanted to highlight this article here, but before I do, just uh, tell everybody uh, about this publication, Die Weltwoche. Oh, this is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is the um, uh, weekly publication allied with Die Welt, uh, which is a right-of-centre German daily. And the headline here translates as uh, editorial or leading article, Biden, Baerbock, Cassis and Company, are we actually being governed by madmen? But this is something that you'd spotted. Uh, yes, uh, and it's written by uh, a, a Swiss uh, politician called uh, Roger uh, Koppel. Um, so let's just have a look at what he's saying here. Our Western super elites and all the think tanks and NATO experts, the generals and political... Uh, I, I'm not quite sure what that word is supposed to be. Zampanos, I think just means uh, head honchos. And by the way, you've reminded me this is a Swiss title, not a German one with a similar title. Yeah, yeah, right. OK. Uh, in, in Washington, Brussels and Berlin have thought of nothing, absolutely nothing. It would have been easy to find a compromise with Russia within the last two years to stop the Western arming of Ukraine. Uh, with NATO outposts and thereby granting the Russians the same security guarantees that the West takes for granted. Uh, it goes on to say, uh, our Western super elites all, sorry, uh, it goes on to say, in short, uh, the more the Americans and Europeans get caught up in their feverish spiral of aggression, the longer, more global and more dangerous this war will be. That's why peace is needed now. In the days of escalation, Europe would have to go ahead, tie back the Biden government set limits for the Ukrainians with their camera-tested charisma, President Zelensky, uh, who could still suffer from Messiah uh, syndrome. Risking a world war against Russia is madness. Peace negotiations are required. Um, so that's uh, that's what it says. Now, the question is, how likely are peace 
negotiations. Well, here's uh, Sergei Lavrov speaking over the weekend following his appearance at the United Nations General Assembly. Um, it's always better to talk than not to talk, he said. Uh, but in the situation where we where we are now, Russia won't take any first steps. So they're basically saying uh, somebody else is going to have to make the first move. It's going to have to come from the West. He said, uh, but the West actions uh, went instantly at the drop of a hat. Everyone began to ban everything Russian and incite domestic Russophobia, uh, merely show that this is racism. Alex, very briefly, do you think that's a fair comment from uh, Lavrov? Well, yes. I mean, however sceptical people are about other parts of the, the Russian uh, power structures, the Ministry of Defence, as I was saying last time I was on, is always careful to give chapter and verse on what it said. And that UNGA speech of 24 minutes was met with prolonged applause, uh, not least because he had been saying that Russia is interested in promoting the interests of Asia, Africa and Latin America, that they get fair representation at the UN. So it was to them, rather than to the West itself, that Lavrov was talking about this hypocrisy. And as usual, you cannot fault him. Yes, indeed. So uh, let's just bring this on screen. This is from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, US intention to bring NATO to Asia Pacific through 2022 sole defense dialogue, uh, unlikely to bear fruit, said the Global Times. However, the efforts are still there. We are seeing China, uh, uh, NATO uh, involving Japan and South Korea in particular in various exercises and so on. Uh, so uh, Lavrov uh, continued, uh, they've announced now that NATO as a defensive alliance is responsible for the security of the Indo-Pacific region. As they put it, uh, NATO's next line of defense will be the South China Sea. I've no doubt about this. So again, he is absolutely correct on that. Yeah, he's bang on the money. And of course, what we, we've just heard about UK uh, defense and defense industry ramping up is all part of this, that NATO is to be expanded. Of course, it's not a line of defense. This isn't it expansion of offense because uh, what will go in are all the longer range uh, weapon systems which will um, bring other countries under the threat of NATO weapons. Um, so on Friday we were talking about the United Nations Security Council and uh, the Britain's pretty disgusting uh, intervention from the Foreign Secretary at that on uh, last week. Uh, but let's uh, bring this Japan Times article up um, Quad nations favor expansion of the UN Security Council permanent seats. Um, and so there is an effort, it seems, in the West to get more Western aligned countries uh, on the Security Council because they're very particularly have been stating that they're concerned about the veto powers of Russia and China on the Security Council for a very long time. So again, Lavrov here had something to say. He said, I've said that we believe India and Brazil are strong candidates for permanent membership at the Security Council as international players provided that the profile of Africa is simultaneously raised accordingly. Um, he said that African countries, uh, the African Union members, are committed to the uh, Zawini uh, consensus. Now, this is uh, the African Union's efforts to get more African representation on the Security Council, and uh, Lavrov said, which was achieved many years ago, and which is their collective position. Um, well, uh, Alex, of course, uh, what he's calling for here is for countries which um, uh, Russia and China perhaps would per perceive to be uh, more more aligned with their interests than Western interests, which is why he's calling for India and Brazil in particular, although India is a, a quad country. Um, so uh, uh, clearly Russia very concerned that that uh, the West is attempting to stack uh, the the Security Council in its favor. 
Yes, Lavrov devoted a minute or so of his speech to the General Assembly to this point, in fact, a couple of minutes, uh, how the Secretariat and the various arms of the UN in New York and Geneva and Vienna were being made into Western playthings and needed to revert to their original aim of being a, a civil, an international civil service. Um, and I suppose the long-term game plan for Russia, perhaps not so much China, there is a difference between them here, not, with, not least with an eye to Russia containing the Chinese threat it itself perceived in the longer term, Russia would seem to want to expand the permanent five up to a permanent ten or so in due course, not by having Britain unceremoniously booted off or France uh, forcing, forcing France to give up its seats to the European Union. No, it would be done probably more diplomatically if the Russians had their way by giving the likes of India, Brazil, maybe Indonesia, and to name two African countries at random, uh, South Africa and Egypt, for example, or perhaps the, the other one would also be a, sec a sub-Saharan African country like Nigeria, giving them a permanent seat as well. Yes. Okay. Thoughts? Uh, well, it's very interesting. Of course, if they expand the seats, they're going to take power away from the uh, UK and the US. So I think there'll be a battle that that isn't going to happen. And of course, Russia at the moment sees that its influence, the influence of China is expanding in into uh, South America and Africa. So we can understand why Lavrov is, is talking about this. Uh, be interesting to see whether the Americans and, and the British are going to stand back and allow more people to have some say in, in what the future rules-based international order is. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does, if you'd like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. You'd be very welcome to join as a community member there uh, and just say thank you very much to everybody that has done that in the last uh, week or so. Uh, and uh, Or you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but do please share the material that you find on the various platforms. Okay, well, I'm going to say uh, thank you very much to the viewer who... Uh, focus my attention in on this report, ABC News, and the headline was Iran summons UK envoy amid anti-government protests. Uh, what was this all about? Um, well, this is uh, trouble in, um, in Iran at the moment over the death of a young lady in police custody. Uh, but the article kicked off with state-run IRNA news agency reported the ministry also summoned Norway's ambassador to Iran and strongly protested recent remarks by the president of the Norwegian parliament. The death of 22-year-old Marsa Amini in custody after being detained by Iranian morality police launched unrest across Iran's provinces and the capital of Tehran. And uh, another paragraph here, the crisis in Iran began as a public outpouring of anger over the death of Amini who was arrested by the morality police in Tehran for allegedly wearing her Islamic headscarf too loosely. The police said she died of a heart attack and was not mistreated, but her family is cast out on that account. Now, I want to say straight away, let's just have a little look about what goes on in UK before we start to deal with the situation in Iran. And uh, we're jumping back to November 2019 when the UK column was reporting on the tragic death of Sheikhu Bayou in Scotland. Um, uh, what did we report? During his restraint, officers used batons, CS gas, pepper spray, handcuffs, and leg and ankle restraints. A post-mortem later found that he'd suffered 23 injuries, including head wounds, a fractured rib, facial injuries, bruises to his body, and petechial hemorrhages. Uh, approximately an hour and a half after his restraint, Bayo was pronounced dead. 
So that is the treatment you can expect at the hands of uh, police and custody in UK, Scotland in this case. Um, but this was part of a follow-up from uh, Humza Youssef. Following what has been a complex and thorough investigation and review, the Lord Advocate has confirmed that on the basis of the evidence available, there will be no criminal proceedings against Police Scotland or individual police officers in connection with Mr. Bowe's death. So I think uh, we're setting the scene uh, quite nicely here that uh, there's some really real problems over deaths in custody in UK, never mind what the situation in, is in Iran. But if we just reinforce it, uh, here's uh, a 2020 article from The Express, how many black people die in police custody in England and Wales. And they say a black person is twice as likely to die in police custody than any other ethnicity. In the past 10 years, 163 people have died in police custody in England, Wales, according to the Independent Office for Police Conduct. So um, we should really pay attention to what's going on here. The Express article had some interesting statistics, uh, but we are talking about a large number of people dying in UK. What would happen, though, if Iran used protest groups to kick off unrest in UK about the deaths of individuals in police custody in UK. I think we would have the BBC shouting out in rage that the Iranians should involve themselves over the uh, policing of UK. But this is the reality of uh, the situation in UK. So let's jump back to reports uh, by the BBC on the tragic death of this young lady. So this was part of their um, update headline, uh, Malsa Amini, women take headscarves off in protest at funeral. And on the right, I've got a, a little video clip which should play. Uh, this is actually an embedded clip showing some pretty violent protests um, after this young lady died. And these have now started to spread through Iran. And what we have here is a, a BBC reporter and I'm going to ask for some of your help in a minute, uh, Alex, on his name. And I'm very interested in this gentleman's background. But this uh, is just some of the violence uh, that occurs and people have died as a result of it. And what we have is a BBC reporter tweeting out this and other tweets, which are clearly, in my mind, designed to inflame the situation. So let's bring the gentleman up on screen. Here he is. Can you help me with... Uh, what what you think his his name and background indicate, Alex? If you can see that on your screen, his name is Shayon Sardorizadeh, and by the look of his uh, Twitter handle, he was born in 1986, so that's going to make him uh, around 36 years old. Uh, am I right there? 34 years old? No, 30. Yes, 30, <laughs> 36. Four years to go till he's 40. Um, yeah, and again, you know, such such simple things as the haircuts suggest to me that he is of this middle class, what's often called North Tehran social scene of people who really would like to be like the West. And Russia too has many such people, as does China. You know, there are many people in the, the, the new media circles who support pretty much everything that these countries do. But they have to bear in mind there is, even if the West weren't interfering, there is a great deal of social tension going on. But this man looks of the right age and uh, presentation to be the kind of person who is agitating hard or a Western style of Iran. Okay, so um, very interesting. So we've got a, 
gentleman we might believe is is not exactly unbiased in his reporting i did notice that he follows me while well, he follows the uk column uh, and he's a journalist reporting on disinformation conspiracy theories cults and extremism uh, well who have we got bbc monitoring and bbc world and as we've discussed many times before these two organizations sit very closely alongside british intelligence services but if we have a look at some of his tweets, he's tweeting out absolutely um, or retweeting tweets which are clearly there to help sow the seeds of major unrest and trouble inside Iran itself. And uh, this lower uh, tweet uh, with a embedded video clip is actually calling for regime change. So we have a BBC employee openly supporting calls for re regime change in Iran. And yet, supposedly, he's a journalist reporting on disinformation and conspiracy theories, cults and extremism. So I'm going to say to the audience, this is the BBC at its very worst, saying to the world that it's uh, open in its reporting, it's unbiased. Uh, but when we dig into where the reports are coming from, we find something very different. Now, let's remind ourselves that it's only been the UK column that has pointed out the work of Juliet Harkin, former BBC Media Action Project Manager, BBC Media Action, the BBC charity, which says it's helping the world through taking over their media, well, helping their media. And here she was saying that in 2004, the BBC were working inside Syria uh, to work alongside anybody who was uh, attempting regime change. That's uh, what it's about. So consider that, and here is the BBC back in 2016 itself helping to inflame tensions about the wearing of headscarves. So we reported all this in quite some detail back at the time, but the BBC was active with reports on a subject where it knew that not only was it going to stir up unrest in Iran, but it was also going to put uh, young women at risk of what it described described as a very onerous regime uh, because part of this was the um, the use of face recognition technology so the bbc fully understood that if it was encouraging women to break the law in iran it was going to put them at risk and despite uk columns speaking to bbc team they carried on with this uh, here's another article why iranian women are wearing white on wednesday a new social media campaign against a law which forces women to wear a headscarf is gaining momentum. This is the BBC agitating. Uh, a variety of names were put forward. But a little bit later, this was also going on in the background. Now we've got Lillian Landall, the senior controller of BBC News International and the director of the BBC World Service. And uh, this is a quote from the BBC's website. It was after, <coughs> excuse me, it was after the escalation of persecution in 2017, when the Iranian judiciary imposed a freeze on all assets of BBC News Persian staff in Iran, that the BBC initiates, initiated its first ever UN complaint in relation to the protection of BBC journalists, and has continued to engage with UN special mechanisms since. So the BBC standing up to say that it was unbiased in how it's reporting worldwide news, including Iran, is working in the background to attack the Iranian government using the UN. 
Alex, uh, we're very tight for time, but this is truly outrageous behavior by the BBC when it knows that with one hand it's stirring trouble and unrest in Iran and other countries. We've seen it in Syria. And at the same time, it's begging for the help of the UN when there's a backlash against its own journalists. It's a crystallised example of the BBC having it both ways, isn't it? Uh, when talking to the UN, they are public, and when talking to the Persians, they are private. Indeed. Well, we just add this, that, OK, the source is Wikipedia, but uh, commenting on Ms Landor, it says in November 2016, she was included as one of the inspirational and influential women of 2016 in the BBC's 100 women, top 100 women, and the theme was defiance. Um, so is this woman a journalist or actually is she a change agent? It's difficult to say, but encourage people to have a look at this uh, article on the UK Column website when we were starting to pull apart this despicable behaviour by the BBC. Uh, and that's in the editor's choice section at the bottom of the front page. Yes, thank you for that, Mike. Um, so where do we go now? Is this to we're, the Netherlands? We're now to the Netherlands, yes. Okay, Alex, uh, take us through this. This is the state opening of Parliament, which, as in Britain, is an annual royal affair. In the Netherlands, it's the uh, uh, third Tuesday, sorry, second Tuesday in September. And you can see the state carriage, very controversial because of its uh, depictions of, of craven natives uh, from the imperial era uh, being uh, taken through the streets of The Hague so that the royal family can come to Nordeinde Palace and wave from the balcony. Uh, the speech is very much like the king's speech annually in Britain, uh, in that it is the legislative agenda for the year, but it is also in the Dutch version, Budget Day, and uh, known in the Dutch as Prinsjesdag. Uh, so it's largely financial debates that follow. Um, but that was the pomp and ceremony of what went on. Um, the trouble is, uh, and it was even more embarrassing because this year, Princess Amalia has attained the age of majority. She's turned 18. So she, the eldest daughter of King uh, Willem Alexander and Queen Maxima, uh, was uh, joining her parents and her uncle, uh, Prince Constantine, on the balcony. Unfortunately, there was almost as much booing in The Hague at the uh, Nordeinde balcony appearance as there was cheering. So have a listen now to this clip which we've taken. And there was also some jeering of the state carriage as it was taken through the streets of The Hague, um, although I wouldn't suggest that was a majority of the onlookers. Uh, rough times for the royal family in some regards. Now, what we're going to play silently on screen at the moment is the uh, unexpected zinger that happened during the debate on the King's speech the next day in uh, the House of Representatives, the lower house of parliament. Thierry Baudet, whom we have talked about before, uh, as the leader of the Forum for Democracy Party, 
in his uh, party leader's speech, they all get a turn to respond to the government's financial plans. And you can see the facial expressions here, was saying that the woman in red, uh, who's on screen at the moment, Sigrid Kach, who is the finance minister and the leader of the radical D66 party, which are democratic socialists and cultural revolutionaries. He was saying that she did her Master of Philosophy, MPhil, at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and that it was well known that this was, quote, a spy college where Western secret services trained their spies. At this, not just Mrs. Kach, but the entire cabinet walked out. Shortly thereafter, only Prime Minister Mark Rutte came back in. Meanwhile, you can see on screen that Baudet is saying, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Why are they trotting out? Uh, I only said that uh, something that's on public record, which is that she studied at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Well, most of the Dutch media, of course, have given an explainer which says, A, this is a conspiracy theory, something that Prime Minister Rutte and the Speaker of Parliament as well, Vera Bergkamp, actually said to Baudet. That's how impartial they were. It's a conspiracy theory. Um, and Baudet, is, uh, you know, he's been on record before uh, doing similar things. Uh, he and another younger member of Parliament of his party, Gideon von Meyeren, have got into hot water before comparing COVID restrictions to the Third Reich particularly the vaccine passport issue. Uh, and that time, at that time as well, the speaker, Mrs. Bergkamp, um, showed how much of a new style speaker she was, just as we saw last week in the footage we've just shown, because on that occasion, she said, look at all the MPs who are queuing up at the intervention uh, microphone, Mr. von Meyeren, uh, waiting for their eager chance to get offended by you. So she was, you know, transparently saying, um, I'm here to look after the, the feelings of members of parliament. The Forum for Democracy has since accused Mrs. Bergkamp uh, of wishing to create a safe space uh, for revolutionaries because Baudet finished his what would have been his speech after he had his right to speak uh, taken off him by the Speaker because of that episode. He finished the speech in his office and it was all the usual talking points of the Forum for Democracy uh, because the Dutch opposition is actually a bit more interesting than most European countries. So he was talking about cultural Marxism, the use of socialism and Marxism to remove the nation state, which Mr. Modé has written several books about before going into politics. Um, a long-term Anglo-American plan. Uh, of course, it's got written off as conspiracy theory by the Dutch media as a whole, but it has uh, pricked up a few more million Dutch ears to uh, questions such as the Rhodes-Milner conspiracy, not that he named it. And of course, there are two other Oxford College is well known in many books to be of the same ilk. Uh, Balliol College, where, where Rhodes started his uh, project, and All Souls, which to, towards the Lord Lothian era uh, was the, the way in which you made Chatham House people uh, pseudo-academics. You made them a, a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. This is well-known stuff. In reactions, Sigrid Kach herself has called Mr. Baudet extremist. So you can see that the strategy now, and there doesn't seem to be any daylight between her and the supposedly more centrist uh, parties in the coalition, the strategy is to have the whole party proscribed, de facto if not officially, uh, because she, it was absolutely unacceptable, she says. She also disingenuously claimed that her safety was, uh, was uh, brought into jeopardy uh, by this speech. The Prime Minister himself, Mark Rutter, has called Mr. Baudet's talk an alt-right conspiracy theory, as you can see here. Uh, the line that the Speaker takes very much like the previous one, Khadija Arib, although this speaker, Bergkamp, is even less uh, apparently impartial, is to say, look here, we agree in this parliament that we don't talk ad hominem, we don't talk about the people or the person of ministers, we have to keep it general. Sadly, though, the word parliament means talking, historically talking between the king and the people. So if the king appoints uh, a, a, a wretched and unacceptable minister in the view of one of the party leaders or any member of parliament, surely the parliament is the place where you hold the king to account for that and say, 
another minister, please, this person is unacceptable. But no, you get shut down for that now. What else has been going on in the Netherlands? Meanwhile, the well-known notorious Romeos, the uh, police unit that appear in Mufti and snatch people off the streets and incite riots, there's been much footage of that since COVID began, have been in the news again because here there was another pro-farmers protest in Amsterdam quite recently. And you can see them turning up with their balaclavas on, getting their batons out and just uh, exfiltrating into a police van right in front of Amsterdam Central Station. Uh, people who they decided were not acceptable faces on the streets and they're joined there by uniformed co colleagues. Um, you can see how much anger there is towards that. So in short, uh, a very restless year, I think, has begun in Dutch politics. And as usual, what is said in the Dutch parliament and society is reflective of what is thought in many other democracies. And Alex, uh, I know we're now looking at the clock, but um, just to ask you, why why do you think there's been a backlash against the Dutch royal family? Because over the years, the uh, population has been very, very supportive of, of a royal family, which has kept itself in a very, um, what's the word, protected cage. It's behaved itself. It's small. Why have they turned against them? Well, that's true, Brian. It's been, it'll be a decade next year since the handover, as in Britain just recently, from a beloved old queen to a much less beloved uh, middle-aged, well, Willem, uh, Charles is already old, but Willem Alexander still middle-aged, uh, a younger son who is much less conservative and Christian in his presentation. But there's more to it than that, I think, that uh, what's happened since COVID with the rise of the Forum for Democracy, and I don't cheerlead everything they do, but they do, they do call themselves um, icebreakers or, or, or flagship as a party, so they, they, they stick their neck out sometimes and use careless expressions. What they have done is put on the table talking points that aren't on the table in any other Western country uh, about a deep state agenda. And people have really taken to that in the last couple of years. They have managed to put two and two together, World Economic Forum talking points, uh, Bilderberg talking points. The Netherlands, of course, as a country is deep embedded in that uh, up to royal family level. And I think now critical mass has been reached that enough people have realized that the king is personally responsible, constitutionally personally responsible for the quality of the ministers that he allows to uh, govern policy areas in his name. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you, Alex. Uh, okay, Alex, let's uh, move on then to uh, an, a video that's on the uh, UK column at the moment. This is entitled NHS Betrays Its Own Nurse Abandoned in, in Soiled Bed. And this is my interview with Sean Diodat about his 86-year-old mother. Uh, there's a lot of debate between them and the local NHS clinical commissioning group in north central London as to who's responsible for what. Mr. Diodat's contention is that neither the National Health Service in the form of the local clinical commissioning group, nor social services, who, uh, who you can pay to do this for you, uh, will do night care. And as you'll hear in the clip we're about to play, uh, Mrs. Diodat has said she doesn't absolutely does not want to go into a care home. She's done that in a lucid moment because she's now got dementia. So Sean is, is describing here the result of that process which is that because the NHS has said you don't have any primary care needs, Sean Diodat is left changing his mother's incontinence pad at night. The NHS has told him if there's a problem, call an emergency ambulance at a time when there's such a critical shortage of ambulances as Debbie has covered. Uh, and this is also becoming a clinical issue because, quite frankly, the faecal matter is ending up in her bed source. So let's listen to Sean Diodat getting understandably very emotional about his year -long years long battle with the clinical commissioning group in his part of London. But even these carers are shocked um, privately with me saying, you know, if, you, if we pull out of there, she will slide right down. Um, and that's what hurts, you know. 
um, sorry. Yeah, you know, she knows they're going to take the care of carers away. Then she knows that, um, and I can't, I can't clean her on my own. Um, it's, um, I wouldn't be able to. I, I mean, it's, even if she wanted me to, it's just the dignity side of it. She, you know, I shouldn't be doing that, and she doesn't want to go in a care home. And under the 2014, I think it's a Care Act, the social worker did say to me, she asked her, do you want to go in a care home? And she said, no, 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 no. And she wrote those words down. No, 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 no. And then she said, under under the Care Act, I can't put your mum in a care home. She's compass men and is enough to say she doesn't want to go in a care home. So we have to keep her here. And because we're running very short of time, we'll skip some slides which have come already in the form of follow-up. But what we'll do, I think, is update the UK column hosting page for that interview with the full email I received already from a viewer, which gives detailed uh, expert advice on what to do if you are having your own battle with a clinical commissioning group in Britain's NHS. Thank you for that, Alex. This is an important thing, isn't it, that when the information is going out from UK column news or in the video interviews, we are getting a bigger and bigger response from people who uh, can see what's happening and have experienced it themselves. So spreading the information does have an effect all of its own. Um, OK, so well, we stay on the subject of the NHS. Welcome, uh, Debbie. You are at a position or in a position at the moment where things are moving so quickly in the NHS. You, you almost don't know what to what to focus on, which one to look at but I know that you've been very worried about what the plan is uh, for patients in the NHS. I have indeed, and, and we've, we've talked about the NHS long-term plan many times before, but Theresa Coffey, our new health minister, um, has announced her plan for patients. Uh, this plan was announced in uh, just, just a few days ago on the 22nd of September, the plan for patients. And I just wanted to give a quick translation on a few of the points because it's a really big paper. So I'd advise everybody to go and have a look at it. But I've taken a few um, snapshots of some of the document that I just want to translate. So what she actually saying is that she's cutting corners. So more capacity beds, <laughs> well, 7,000 more capacity beds, that's your bed, that's my bed. These are beds in your own home because we're talking about virtual beds. So let's not think we're talking about 7,000 beds in a hospital because I don't think we are. We're talking about your bed in your house so you'll be virtually cared for. Call handlers. She's going to increase call handlers. Are, are they going to be chatbots? Are they going to be uh, vocal markers? Probably. Ambulances. She's going to have hospital ambulance liaison officers, which acronym to halos uh, which kind of gives the angelic doesn't it the these people are angels um, and i'm looking at st john's ambulance have just been awarded a huge contract for ambulances so that's probably what she's uh, referencing to a, an auxiliary ambulance service then she's talking about oh yes community pharmacists are now going to be prescribing uh, taking more weight off the gps and i have talked about gps in my blog, so I'm not going to cover the GPs in this particular segment, but it looks like community pharmacists are going to be the way to go, which is, is what we've been warning of. The dental workforce, now this is interesting because she's she seems to be implying that she's going to lower the qualifications for dentists, which seems to be happening over the board. Nurses, doctors, whoever you are, 
you're not going to need the training or the qualification that you would have needed maybe a few years ago. So we're going to be encouraging dentists from out of England and we're going to be encouraging dentists that haven't had such a high qualification as the dentists that we're used to. So that's just a, a couple of things. We're also going to get 31,000 uh, GP phone lines. So here we go, telemedicine. So it's not what you think that you're going to get an easier access to your GP. You're just going to get through to them on the phone quicker. Um, and they're also going to be incentivizing GPs because they're leaving. Oh, I wonder why. Um, and then we're looking at who are we sharing digital records with? Because all of a sudden now, all of our records have become digitized. And many of our viewers will know that NHS X has now become NHS Digital. And that was involving Palantir, who was headed by Peter Thiel. It's got many sort of uh, CIA um, connections, private company. Who is our data going to? She's looking at faster diagnosis. Well, we knew that would happen, didn't we? And guess where that's going to happen? Shopping centres um, and your high street. And we'd already said in the high street, you'll be able to go to a birthing hub or a surgical hub or a urgent care hub. So hospitals as we know them are going to go. And then she's saying that we're going to get an extra £500 million from the NHS budget to, to discharge people quickly from hospital. I'm not quite sure where we're going to be um, discharging them to. And that £500 million is coming from the NHS budget. And the NHS Confederation have got a lot to say about that. So complete carnage in the NHS. And I heard the Shadow Chancellor announce just before we came on air that she too is going to double district nurses. Oh, I wonder why. Is that care in the home? She's going to double doctors, all these grandiose plans when we know deep down the NHS structure has gone and will be facing a virtual health service, a virtual NHS, if you like. So, yeah, worrying times ahead for the NHS. Okay, um, Debbie, and of course, we've got the collapsing NHS infrastructure and buildings in the background as well. So I'm going to say to our audience, just apply the rule. If you don't understand what's happening with the NHS, try thinking the government is out to destroy it. And then we can see the policies are doing a very good job. Um, but we got you've got some interesting reports from Scotland here. I have. I've added these um, because David very kindly sent them to me. And as he's not um, here today, I thought I would definitely feature them. Because if we think we've got it bad in England, Scotland have got it super bad. I mean, they are outsourcing everything. And a, an article in the Herald that he sent me, um, which is entitled The Scottish Public Does Not Know How Bad It Has Become. And this is doctors revealing how bad that the NHS in Scotland is. And when you look at the article and you look at the English comparison, you know, waiting times for cancer are incredibly long. Um, patients have been dying on trolleys. Um, they, they say that NHS staff are kind of living like in a pressure cooker. So if we think we've got it bad in England, I just want to sort of point attention also to Scotland because this is, and, and I'm sure we'll come on to Wales and Northern Ireland in following news, but for today, um, Scotland are in a real, real bad state, real bad way. And Debbie, they're clearly in that article identifying the danger of outsourcing. You think you're dealing with yeah. the NHS, but actually it's a shell. It's been hollowed out. You're dealing with an outsourced company or uh, organisation or partnership. 
So it's very interesting to see that the truth's coming through that. Uh, but you've also uh, picked up on the sun here with uh, changes to the Scott COVID testing rules. Yeah, well, I didn't. I had absolutely no clue that NHS staff were being told to still test every week. Um, I, I had absolutely no clue, but apparently they're not going to be required to be tested every week from from the end of this week. So it's like, wow, um, the NHS seem to be making up the rules as they go along, because clearly there are no government restrictions in. There's no government mandate in. There's no recommendations. And yet we all seem to be listening to what the NHS are saying. So who is governing the country? Uh, very good point. And uh, you picked up on this one and you're already speaking to GPs who were astonished to know that they're ultimately responsible for all of the problems with vaccine adverse reactions. Yeah, so this very, very quickly, because I know we're tight for time. If people want to go back and just uh, freeze the frame on that, that was the paragraph that I read out last week of this very comprehensive email that Dr. Alison Cave has sent me from the MHRA, which we are going through. I promise you we will bring more, more to you from that. But people were so astonished at the paragraph that I read out, I was just wanting to show them a screenshot of it because GPs are absolutely mortified. You know, some of them are starting to think, wow, we really have been thrown under the bus. So if nothing else, then maybe some of them are starting to realise what is going on. Okay, and Debbie, you 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 stayed on the uh, trail of the MHRA, but you were you were interested to get a response from them recently that they've upheld your complaint. So, um, well, I'll let you explain what happened, but uh, this is a really fascinating one for me. Yes, well, um, I've had a complaint upheld. Um, I don't know many other people that have had a complaint upheld because they actually changed their definitions of complaints back in the June board meeting. But um, I received a letter from the complaints team. Um, they say they define complaints to include alleged mistakes, um, unreasonable delays where matters haven't been dealt with promptly, poor or inappropriate staff behavior, rude responses, or refusing to listen. Uh, failure to follow proper procedures and policies, perceived bias or discrimination, poor or lack of communication. So you can freeze that, but what they've done is they've upheld my complaint because of the time that it's taken to reply to all of my questions. So I've actually put three complaints into the MHRA, one specifically with regards to Dame June Rain, one specifically with regards to Dr. Alison Cave, and a more general complaint now they've upheld this, I received this two hours before the board meeting was released last week. And the reason that I feel that I have received this is because I challenged the chair, Stephen Lightfoot, when I was at the previous board meeting, um, they always ask at the beginning of the board meeting in the housekeeping, have all the public questions been answered, if not over on screen, but in writing. And June Rain answered that they had been answered. Well, mine hadn't. So I was on the chat box on the MHRA board meeting saying, please, could you correct this? It's, a, it's, it's, in, it's misinformation. My questions have not been answered, to which I received a response in the MHRA boardroom chat box saying, we're terribly sorry, we haven't. We will reply to you. But there was no correction in the meeting minutes. I didn't get a reply. So I wrote to the chair, Stephen Lightfoot, and I said, your CEO, Dame June Rain, has been misleading the board 
by informing you that all public questions have been answered because mine haven't. In the end, I submitted a complaint to the Information Commissioner's Office in the hope of getting to the Parliamentary Ombudsman. They have watered down my complaint substantially. However, I am glad that it's been upheld um, and I would encourage everybody, literally everybody, to do the same because it, if you push them hard enough but make it concise, succinct and polite and ask them questions, then you will get movement. And clearly this is movement because they don't want me going to the parliamentary ombudsman. However, I'm looking at the answers they've given me, they're, they're giving me and I'm discussing them with the team um, at UK Column and we're going to consider where we go next with this. Okay, Debbie, thank you for that. We'll, we'll end on this one is that, uh, and a big, big thank you to a UK Column viewer who has sent us through the latest board meeting from the MHRA. So top right hand corner um, is the uh, image that you will now find on the UK Column website. And there is the full, I think it's two hour, 20 minute video, the latest MHRA board meeting. You can now see on the UK Column, but it's not up on the uh, MHRA's own YouTube channel. Um, Debbie, this is a tremendous piece of work. You, you've spent a lot of time to put in the timestamp. So if people do go to the UK column and look for that video, you can see that Debbie uh, has put in timestamps and, and shown what key topics are. And we're going to encourage people to do that. Debbie, we're going to move on from here, but thank you very much for your excellent work on that. And we'll have more to say on the MHRA in due course. Um, sorry, what did you we're say? Six, 63 we're going to go to, which should bring us back to a little bit on Wales. Alex. Yes, the voice of Wales is a well-known, uh, increasingly well-known new media uh, ex uh, effort. For a while now, uh, they have been going up and down the South Wales M4 corridor where there are many out-of-town hotels. Uh, the young men who run it, I think it's Dan and James, are the two main names. And as you will know about the Cumbran Stadium episode and police uh, meddling at the time, if you've been following this for a while. Well, they've been following many of these hotels where large numbers of uh, illegal immigrants, if we're still allowed to call them that, um, are being housed. The, the, the security staff have always got very shirty with them, even when they've been filming from public land. Uh, sometimes South Wales police have come along and said, boy, move on. So here, from the beginning of this month, 9th of September, they are reporting on their own website that when they turned up at the Holiday Inn at Cardiff, um, they are investigating reports of what they call fake refugees. And this has led to some, uh, some to-do, actually. So uh, what's gone on here? is, uh, well, we'll see in the first video, uh, there, there was a particular extract of a video which riled South Wales Police, one of the nation's three police forces. They may soon be one in the Scottish fashion, but at the moment it's still South Wales Police. And they uh, proactively went to the Voice of Wales's media output and took exception to this particular uh, extract. You'll see first um, some primary footage put out by James of Voice of Wales, and then you will see him talking about uh, the objection he got to a, 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 a turn of phrase he used. Hey, mate, how you doing? Right, where are you going? Uh, we're going to look at how much a room is here. Oh, yeah, this part for the toilet. Not for the public? Yeah, sorry for that. Any reason why? I don't think I did. Any reason why it's not to the public, mate? Sorry. I don't think it's for the room
So you've heard the key phrase there. In his interjection between his two pieces of primary footage, James at Voice of Wales said, they have admitted that they are undocumented aliens. Now, if you bring on the next slide, he updated this two days later, the 11th of September, saying that his parents' house, where he doesn't live, uh, got a police visit by South Wales Constabulary. And he was told uh, when he called the police to say what's going on with the harassment of my parents, that in one of his videos covering the ho hotels, which he calls secret migrant hotels, he referred to these illegal immigrants as undocumented aliens. Nobody had complained, but the police interpreted their role as being proactively concerned on the behalf of a fictitious or putative future complainant who may be offended. Tap that, we have one more slide, which is that, in fact, the police were so concerned by the use of the word undocumented aliens that they decided to send police round on a Saturday night when anyone who knows South Wales who knows well, uh, there's usually a bit of hurly-burly going on. They diverted policemen uh, to the house of his parents and told him, you have to take this video down. He concludes they want to keep these hotels secret. And we'll play now the clip of the police harassing James himself regarding that. There's a couple of hundred people calling me a Nazi online, and that's really quite offensive. Um, so I was wondering if you could investigate them as well, please. Well, it's one thing. It's one Who's calling you a Nazi? Oh, there's hundreds of people online. I can send you all the screenshots or the proof. You know, I've kept it. I've got someone who's stalking me in Cardiff for my views. Right. Um, but, I mean, you're, you know, if, if, if I could be charged with um, calling to an undocumented feeling, which is the... Video is it, it, it's a bit it's a bit out there it's a bit it's a bit um, 
I wouldn't be posting that video if I, well, I didn't want to I wouldn't be surprised at all if someone was to take offence to that. People are going to take offence to whatever, but the, at the end of the day, offence is projective. Um, so, you know, I get offended, you know, people get offended over everything. So, it's, it's not down to me. I'm not going to remove the video because I'm a journalist. That's my job. Like, that is my job. As a journalist, is to expose what's going on, and you know th th this is costing the taxpayer hundreds of millions of pounds. So that's my, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, as I end the day, you've been made aware. You, you, you're under no obligation to take it down. By all means, what you want to do is, is whatever is whatever you want to do. Alright. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. Be all right. Cheers. All right. Bye. 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 There were South Wales Police and the officer in question was of course being faithful to the oath of office he swore, which as we all know was, I will make people aware of where they have uh, offended against society and I will tell them that I'm not telling them to take any material down, but it's their lookout if they don't. Uh, we have uh, for extra time another video uh, from Kim Isherwood from Wales regarding the campaign against the sexualization of three-year-olds three year in school, but we'll go straight on now for uh, the main news to this, which ties in what's happening with the sexualization of children in Wales to in Scotland. So a viewer uh, who's a parent in Scotland says that they saw uh, last week's segment uh, on the sexualization of secondary school children in this case. Um, the lady says these videos, which are being shown my daughter at, at school, are suggestive and crass and not educational. People can go to those rshp.scot materials. You can see the two links in the middle of the, the, the page there, third and fourth level and senior phase. Uh, the head teacher involved has told, um, has, has said that guidance staff have confirmed that current lear learning uh, uses this material. Now some of the links the viewer has found are entitled, is masturbation good for you? Porn sex versus real sex? And who has the best orgasm? The mother goes on to say, you can advance that, my daughter told me that they were pushing the implant or injection method of contraception and she was scolded for questioning why, when it came to discussion of contraception, condoms were not good enough. This is a 14-year-old girl and you can see in the screenshot of what she's being shown at school. Contraception. Uh, you will find out about long-acting reversible contraception in particular. So when it comes to contraception, you'll be told largely about injections and implants, you 13 and 14-year-olds. And you will also be told about the morning after pill and condoms, but that's an afterthought. Uh, I, don't, I know we're on stops for time, but as this is a health issue, I wonder what Debbie thinks of teaching 14-year-olds about injections and implants as the primary or desired means of contraception. You know what, Alex? It, this just this just follows the agenda of implants, medical devices. Um, it, I'm speechless. I mean, it, clearly it's all for all the wrong reasons. But this is the way forward. It's going to be implants and devices for everything from here on in. Uh, and Debbie, we we haven't been able to show it on the news, but you you produced a um, um, section of a document showing that. Uh, is stated quite openly that um, COVID vaccines from, th I think it's AstraZeneca, are not approved for mixing with any other vaccines that are being given. So uh, that's a vaccine. We've got another injection here. Who's actually monitoring the risks of a, a young person who's now getting multiple jabs for very different things? Who is looking out for their health? No one literally no one and that's the scary thing um absolutely terrifying nobody is looking out for anyone that's suffering 
from any kind of adverse reaction on anything at the moment. We're, we're living in very, very scary times. So we need to be prepared for what's coming and we need to be watching what's going on right under our own noses. Okay. Well, the clock, I think, is uh, beating us today. So we will, we will jump to some finals. And I do want to play out a, a very special video clip, which is the true state of the West, Western world. But Alex, I think you've got a couple of um, images uh, here, which I'll we'll just bring up on screen. Yes. Um, so this is the second attempt recently at, uh, at humorously answering the question, what are the three branches of the US government, which I have shown. Uh, you might remember the children uh, in, in the primary school in the US uh, answering in a particularly humorous way that we showed a couple of weeks ago. Here's another one by Daniel Cannon. Um, when he's uh, react, in reacting to the news that now a minority of Americans can name the three branches of government, quite shocking given their constitutional schooling there, he suggests that they are the Anti-Defamation League, the Federal Reserve and BlackRock. There's also a word of the day, which I found last week. Of course, I've swapped with David Scott last week. So this is from a week ago today on my Telegram channel, Eastern Approaches. Uh, I told people that the UK column chat box word of the day uh, during the section in which uh, Nicola Sturgeon was uh, described, was, and you might be able to advance that mic to get to the next slide, tartanitarianism. So there we are. Scotland has a tartanitarian regime. Okay, thank you for that, Alex. Well, we'll end on this one. And uh, uh, do we thank Debbie for it? Well, I think we'll have to, but uh, this one comes with a health warning. And it's the, the Express. Uh, with some really emotive images, humbled Elton John breaks down in tears as he accepts award from President Joe Biden. Uh, so there's the uh, crying man on the left, and we've we've got Elton with his husband and uh, Biden and uh, and uh, Mrs. Biden on screen. Um, let's look at a video which I think sums up the Western world, and of course. It's pointing towards subjects which uh, even Putin feels obliged to warn us about what's actually happening to our nation states. Tonight, it's my great honor, and I mean this sincerely, to present the National Humanities Medal to Sir Elton John. Throughout his career, Elton found his voice, not only his voice, but his voice to help others and help them find their voice. With his hope, he made history rhyme for countless people in our nation. That's what tonight is all about. Elton often talked about how American music changed his life and how the different genres and sounds influence his own music and Im imagination. It's clear Elton John's music has changed our lives. To David and the boys, thank you for sharing your husband and dad with us tonight. And to Elton, and to, and to Elton, on behalf of the American people, thank you, and I sincerely mean this, thank you for moving the soul of our nation. I've played in some places before that have been beautiful, but this is probably the icing on the cake. And I want to thank everybody who asked me to play tonight. Um, 
I don't know how to take a compliment very well, but it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here amongst so many people who have helped my AIDS Foundation and my heroes, the ones that work day to day on the front line. Um, teachers, nurses, everybody who's helped. They're the heroes to me. God bless you. Um, let's have some music. It well, thank you very much for that one, uh, Debbie. I just think that uh, you can have a better demonstration as to the problems in the Western world. And as somebody said in our chat box, worshipping false idols. I think we should leave it there. Uh, Alex, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. A lot to think about, but uh, stay with that idea. If you can't understand the policies, uh, try just thinking that our own governments in UK and the USA are attacking their own people. Suddenly everything falls into place. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.